Hey there. Welcome to Muscle Maven Radio. Feels so good to say that. I'm your host, Ashley Van Houten. I'm very happy to be here. I'm very happy that you are here. Thank you for joining me. Let's just get into this, shall we? My first official episode of Muscle Maven Radio. If you actually, the first official one was last week, you can go back and listen. It's very short, just kind of explaining what's going on, the transition of the podcast and what you can expect. But this is my first one with a guest, and I'm very excited to introduce you to her, Dr. Anna Kabeca. She is an expert on women's health, fertility, sexual health, hormonal health, which is very important because as we all know, hormones are a trip super complicated. We don't know what is going on half the time. Even the experts kind of don't because it's so complicated and they're so interconnected. It's very hard to pinpoint when you are experiencing hormonal issues, which hormone is causing the problem because they all sort of work together and what lifestyle factor or thing you could do to fix it. Because again, it's all kind of layered and complex. So it's good to have experts like this on the podcast to sort of help us parse it out a little bit and at least figure out sort of where to where to start looking, what to start doing, and how hormonal health or the lack of it, the imbalance of your hormones can affect important things like fat loss and sexual health and fertility and overall health, like I just mentioned. So Dr. Anna gets into her own history, which is really kind of incredible, and how she was diagnosed with infertility and then became pregnant naturally in her early 40s. And this is somebody who's already super knowledgeable about stuff that was experiencing these issues too. So we talk about that. We get into fasting and how that, of course, can affect our health and and hormonal health and, and how women may need to approach it differently. We talk about the keto diet and how that can be very beneficial, and also how that needs to be approached differently for women. So she has this new book called Keto Green 16, where she kind of has a more nuanced approach maybe to keto. And we talk about it because, you know, obviously when I hear the word green, I'm thinking, okay, is this plant-based? And tell me about that. Because obviously that's not necessarily my personal approach, but it's good. We have a discussion about it and how she approaches it, I think really kind of makes a lot of sense. And she also talks a lot about the importance of eating alkaline foods, which was something that I really wanted her to dive into and explain why that's important, why the acidity of our stomach is important, how to balance these things. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there about, you know, if you eat alkaline foods, it's going to affect the alkalinity of your blood and you need to, I don't know, like there's a lot of kind of misinformation out there. And so she helps me kind of understand that part, which I hope will be helpful to you as well. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Dr. Anna is just such a positive person who's really, you know, she's been through a lot personally and has used her her experiences and her learning to really help other people. And she's really able to break this stuff down clearly for the average listener like me. So if you like what you hear, definitely check out her new book, Keto Green 16. Give her a follow on Instagram at Dr. Anna Kabeca. That's D-R Anna Kabeca. And you can get all of this in the show notes. Check her out at drannakabeca.com. And of course, share this episode with anyone that you think could benefit. And really, if you are a person with hormones, which I'm pretty sure is all of you, you could benefit. So I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. On to the interview with Dr. Anna Kabeca. Okay, Dr. Anna Kabeca, thank you so much for being on the podcast. 
It is a pleasure being here with you, Ashley. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. it. And I like I like doing the face-to-face. In person would be ideal, but that's obviously not happening for many people right now. So we're doing the, doing the best we can, but I appreciate you taking the time. There's a lot going on in the world and for you personally. So yeah, I appreciate it. Oh, well, it's fun. I love this. I love getting the word out and inspiring and having good conversations. This is about, right? We don't, we talk about, we have to be physically distanced, but not socially distant. That's right. Yeah. hundred percent. And I have a lot of questions for you about your new book that you're promoting now, but I think before I kind of get into my like drilled down questions, I'd love if you can just sort of introduce our listeners to who you are and how you came to write the book that you wrote. Yeah, so I trained as an obstetrician and gynecologist. I trained at Emory University, and I came to Southeast Georgia as a National Health Service Corps scholar. So I had, this was my area for payback, so a rural area in Georgia, and it really has been a blessing. I learned to get to the underlying root causes of issues, so really drove me into functional medicine, and from day one in my practice, bioidentical hormones, because as the sole provider for many of these clients, you know, that was, you know, we had to be creative because we didn't always have expensive medications or expensive surgeries to go to. And so really understanding lifestyle medicine made a difference in in my life. And especially because I specialize in sexual health and bioidentical hormones and really tailoring that for my patients as well. Now, as part of my own journey, however, even though I was board trained and, and studied gynecology and obstetrics, as well as osteopathic medicine, I had my own personal journey, right? Which many of us, when we start going outside the party line, so to speak, it's because of a a personal journey and it's no different for me. At age 39, I was diagnosed with early menopause and infertility. I was told I would not be able to have another child. I mean, there I was. I went through cycle after cycle of the highest doses of injectable fertility meds, and I had no response, no response. And my colleague and reproductive endocrinology friend said, physician, he said, you know, Anna, the only way that you're going to get pregnant is egg donation. And that wasn't an option for my husband and I at the time. And that led me on a journey around the world looking for answers, looking for solutions. It was, you know, for us at that time, it was devastation on devastation. But as a result of that journey, as a result of refilling my doctor's bag with world medicine, not only did I reverse my early menopause, but I became pregnant pregnant and had a healthy baby at age 41. So, so that's a good thing. And then I didn't enter a second menopause, let's say till, you know, in my late 40s, 48. So that's a lot. Yeah. And I mean, reading your book, too, there's there's obviously more more detail. And and I, you know, appreciate you sharing that that story, because there's a lot to it. And some of it is very intense. And I think that it's, it's really helpful for women reading this stuff to hear the personal stories that other people have gone through. And even speaking to functional medicine practitioners and women's sexual health experts like that is so comforting to me as somebody who is in this world and so often reads about or hears about or learns about health from a a male perspective, right? And I think that one of the things that we're going to get into, which is talking about this sort of nuanced approach you have to the ketogenic diet is really helpful because just so often we're talking about optimizing health or we're talking about applying a diet to a male physiology, to a male body. And we're way more complicated. That's just the way it is. We can joke and laugh about it, but it's also the truth. Like our hormones are way more complicated. And so trying to just slap on an approach that works for a man 
for to a woman, it's it doesn't work that way. So I just yeah, it's so helpful to kind of have these discussions with women, not only just women, but women who focus on women's health. I think that's so important. So I really appreciate you sharing that. And so I want to kind of move into so talking about your new book, right? And one of the sort of focuses that you really get into, and we don't have to get into all of it, because we could probably be here all day or all week, but the hormones and how hormones and your ability to sort of balance or have optimal hormones can have an effect on on your weight and your body composition and your ability to lose fat. So can you kind of just from a high level, we don't necessarily have to get into every single hormone and how they relate, but just from a high level, can you talk about how our hormones and our ability to balance those in a healthy way does impact our ability to lose fat? Yeah, absolutely. Because let me tell you, it's that (laughs) it is a journey. And I I would say in my first book is The Hormone Fix. My recent book is Keto Green 16. But what I always say in my books is that it takes more than hormones to fix our hormones, right? It takes more than hormones to fix our hormones. And that's where, you know, the lifestyle medicine comes really, you know, becomes really powerful. And I, I spent years of my life studying the reproductive hormones. I mean, progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, and even DHEA, right, to say (laughs) that it's not all about those hormones. A lot of media, a lot of press, a lot of hype, but it's not all about those hormones. You know, where the, you know, uh, much media goes anti-estrogen and, Mm -hmm. you know, then there's all the pro-male testosterone and, and, and testosterone in women as well and the controversy that relates to that when we really need to look at the major hormones. And for me, those are insulin, cortisol and oxytocin. Those three hormones are the most powerful hormones in the body with oxytocin being the crowning hormone, the absolute most powerful alkalinizing hormone, regenerating hormone in our body. But what happens in as we age, like in our mid to late 20s, our DHEA levels start to decline. That's a function of adrenal Hormones. So that's just natural decline. Adrenal hormones, also ovaries in women produce DHEA. Testes in men produce DHEA. So we peak in our 20s and that starts to decline. And remember that, well, estrogen and testosterone, DHEA is a precursor to the production of estrogen and testosterone. So of course, with that, there is some decline in our estrogen and testosterone, but mostly our ovaries and our adrenals, you know, are are hanging in there. But then in our mid to late 30s, our progesterone levels starts to sharply decline. That is a function, progestation, our pro-life, our pro-fertility hormone, that starts to decline as as a function of decreased ovarian function, just that we just have less reserve less follicles, you know, less progesterone produced from a healthy corpus luteum. And add that into the fact that progesterone, cortisol, our stress hormone, our fight flight hormone, and our stress response hormone is made from progesterone. So sucking that out, sucking that down, just like our as our natural hormones start to decline. And so with that, because progesterone is one of the mother hormones, as that level declines, again, further declines in estrogen and testosterone as time goes on. So that is just a constant, a constant that's happening. And so when we really empower insulin, we get a better balance in our blood sugar management, less cortisol, so we support our adrenal glands, and that helps us balance all of our hormones even more. 
Okay, I've got a couple questions before you go too much further before I forget. So I want to try to keep them straight in my brain. Okay, I may just be sort of repeating something you said back, but I just want to confirm it. So are you saying that stress management, as we know, obviously has a big impact on our hormones and our overall health. But were you saying that having sort of high stress and high cortisol can actually sort of sap other hormones like progesterone and and lower those levels, which is obviously going to have like this whole kind of crescendo effect on like our health, but like having high cortisol can actually bring some of these other hormones down. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Because we are make cortisol from progesterone. Absolutely. Okay, that that says a lot about what's going on with me, I think, right now during this during this uh, quarantine and all of the crazy hormones and emotions and things that are happening that you wouldn't expect. Okay. The other thing Wait, that I, Ashley, that's yeah. that's a big point right yeah. there. Mm-hmm. I'm expecting it. You know, we see the gynecologic abnormalities, irregular cycles, worsening PMS symptoms, anxiety, depression, and just irritability, weight gain. Let's talk about the quarantine 15. It's not necessarily about what we're eating, mm-hmm. right? It is. Um, it can be from that too. Just having cortisol. I mean, definitely for me too. Yeah. So it's yeah. a really big factor. So harnessing cortisol through lifestyle and nutritional intervention, I call it the keto green way, makes a huge difference in our hormones and in our reproductive, I mean, certainly in our reproductive hormones. And it's exactly why so many women will suffer too with the memory loss, you know, fatigue, forgetfulness, I mean, cortisol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's it's really interesting to kind of be to reflect inward and think about this concept too, because I think one of the tough parts for men and women is that oftentimes we're not perceiving certain stresses as stress, right? So like people who maybe work out two hours a day, which is an obvious physical stressor that's going to have an effect on your body. But some people use that as a de-stress mechanism. So they're not realizing that while it may be helpful and like meditative for them, it is also a stress, right? And I think that the current situation that we're in, you know, some of us, and this is myself included, I've been working on sleeping better. I've been eating really well. I've been doing more sort of mindfulness than I would have otherwise. So I'm feeling like all these ducks are in a row and I'm doing things right. But there are so many there's so much layer to what is stressful on your body and stressful on your mind that you may not even be perceiving certain stresses, but they're still having an effect on your body. So I think it's, it's really worth kind of having a really good long look at what your lifestyle is not just like, okay, well, am I eating junk? Or am I staying up all night? There's more to it than that, right? So yeah, it's complicated. (laughs) That's, That's like, that's like the one line I just take out of all of these conversations is like, yeah, it's complicated. It's a lot of work. It is. Yeah. The other question that I wanted to address, because you mentioned that some of these hormones that are really important that we're not even thinking about as being important, you talk about oxytocin. And that's one that I don't think we really talk about very much outside of the conversation of maybe childbirth. So I'd love for you to kind of talk about what that hormone is, how it works, how we can optimize it all the time, not just during specific times in our life. Yeah, yeah. I like to give the example, like if you consider, you know, oxytocin is the most powerful hormone. Think of oxytocin as like the principal of the school or the dean of the university and cortisol and insulin as the key professors or, you know, teachers. And then the rest of the student body, those are all our other hormones interacting, very important. Each has their own role, their own gifts, right? (laughs) Their own problems and works together. So the better that our dean 
dean of the university, so to speak, can stay in, you know, in high functioning, right? Calm, peace, nurturing, you know, disciplined, all of those things, the better everyone else does. And the same is true with oxytocin. And the fact that it is the most alkalinizing hormone in our body, as I, you know, discovered through my work and how powerful that is to heal us. And many people like, you know, here, I just want to clarify oxytocin, not to be confused with oxycodone, because sometimes I get that not a pain medicine, although it does have analgesic properties. Hence, it is the most uh, highly secreted hormone during pregnancy, labor and delivery. I mean, as an obstetrician, I would give women IV pitocin to increase their uterine contractions. That's oxytocin. Pitocin is oxytocin. And so it's been around for a long time and very, very safe. And our body produces it naturally during labor, during orgasm, intimacy, pleasure, laughter, joy, you know, all of all of these things. And this is why we know that, you know, happier people have healthier, happier, longer lives. So healthy marriages associated with longevity. Having a pet, the studies in nursing home, when a pet comes through, right? Oxytocin, unconditional love increases longevity. And so also studies out of Berkeley in California looked at oxytocin given to aging, aging uh, muscles and saw muscle cell regeneration. And the and is so powerful. And this is something that I just think is it makes all made all the difference in my life. And having had trauma, having as I tell my story in the hormone fix and keto green 16, having had trauma in my life, having experienced complete disconnection, isolation, I me mean, wanting to die, life was dark, I was in a dark black pit, essentially. And then, you know, resulting in burnout and divorce and a lot near, I was near broke at one point. And, you know, and then this, this, what I call the keto green way pulled me out of that with the empowerment of oxytocin, and how powerful this hormone is in our body. And it does make a difference. We do need to prioritize it now more than ever. And as much virtually as we can, right, funny movies, fun conversations, and experiencing and expressing love. Yeah, that's, it's a very good point, because that also has a really strong implication on our current situation being that, generally speaking, there probably is less intimacy, and certainly less kind of, even on a friend level, like touching and hugging and being together and that kind of stuff. And we're, we're trying very hard to, to bridge the gap through things like um, digital kind of conversations and, and doing what we can to feel good at home. But that's an area that probably a lot of people are struggling with. I wonder why oxytocin isn't more of a part of the conversation. Like, I understand that when it comes to health and hormonal health, it is very complex, it is very layered, there's it can sometimes be hard to pinpoint like, well, is it that I have low estrogen? Or is it low progesterone? Or is this one just too high? Or is it just, you know, I understand that this is very confusing. But I wonder why we don't talk about this one more. Do you have any insight into that? Yeah, number one, it's off label and oxytocin supplementation is typically through compounding pharmacies. Otherwise, it's available as an injection, which is quite painful and not really conducive to using. It's very quick half life. It's in and out of our system. And so um, it's something really to consider. So using, uh, you know, oxytocin, I certainly have used it off label in my clinical practice, which I've since retired. But when I have my clinical practice using prescribing oxytocin for patients, 
you know, you, if you're checking, I typically will do an oxytocin quiz, determine if someone is, you know, seems more oxytocin deficient. You can just usually tell because oxytocin deficiency looks like, you know, a, a very anhedonia. You don't have joy. You're not expressing joy. Very rarely smiling. A paler skin, clammy hands um, are also associated with oxytocin. I'll tell you some stories because it is really powerful and it's a powerful drug and we have to understand this. It is not benign. Any exogenous hormones that we use are not necessarily without consequence, especially too much too long. And I believe the same is true with oxytocin. There's many factors here that kind of raise a red flag with oxytocin and pitocin, specifically during labor. High dose pitocin therapy may, may not be associated with an increased risk of autism, which kind of makes sense because autistic individuals have an oxytocin deficiency, essentially. And so what happens to our receptors? And that brings me back into my own personal experience, too, with trauma, right? All of a sudden, like the cortisol oxytocin disconnect that I talk about, that cortisol goes up, oxytocin goes down, cortisol is up for a long time our paraventricular nucleus of the brain, same governing area for oxytocin, suppresses cortisol and you're in this burnout, oxytocin, cortisol, disconnect. And that's that burnout that, yeah, I feel love, I know I love my spouse, I don't feel love for them. I know I love my work, I don't feel love for it. I no longer want to do it. And if I, I didn't know, right? The mind don't know, what the eyes don't see what the mind don't know. Mm-hmm. That's a Southern Georgia Emory University expression. For the OR, but anyway, it's so true in life too, right? If you if you don't know it, you'll never see it. And so once I've known it, knew about it, I have seen it everywhere. I see clients with PTSD, with trauma, with adverse childhood experiences, with chronic everyday stress. You get this physiologic burnout. Behavior is physiologic, and so we, you know then the good news is we can use behavior to shift our physiology, such as oxytocin producing behaviors. But because it's off label for use for prescribing, number one, and we, you know, that's that's one thing, it's bioidentical. So predominantly through compounders, there are some homeopathic formulas available. But the bottom line is that it, it's our own activities and our perceptions and our lifestyle practices that increase our own natural oxytocin. We decrease cortisol, manage cortisol, and do practices that increase oxytocin, compassion, heart math, heart rate variability, meditation, the practice of appreciation is, you know, appreciation and feeling loved unconditionally is hugely oxytocin boosting and lowers cortisol. So as we create these lifestyle, we have to create these lifestyle practices. And now it's more important than ever, because I fear what's happening is, you know, increased depression, increased isolation, increased suicide, a physiologic response, right? Physiologic and increased divorce. And we don't want that. We want to restore healthy, happy families and have it for the rest of our lives. And so we can understand the physiology of divorce, the physiology of burnout, then we can take different lifestyle approaches to really empower our hormones. Mm -hmm. I work with a a functional medicine physician and I, um, at some point, it was probably about a year ago, I was mostly experiencing sleep 
related issues like trouble with getting to sleep, a couple other things, sort of nothing that I considered major, major red flags. And one of the things that we tried was a, like an exogenous oxytocin. It was a nasal spray. And I didn't really notice much of a positive benefit from it. And I'm wondering, is it possible that, I don't know, the product wasn't good? Is it possible that that wasn't, just wasn't what I needed? Is it possible that I just didn't respond to exogenous oxytocin? Like, I guess I just, I had sort of high hopes for it. Like I had these hopes that I was going to use it and just be like, oh, yay, I feel so great, you know? And I didn't <laughs> really, and again, there weren't any issues with like depression or major sort of mood instability. It was just kind of like, can we like level up a little bit? Can I just kind of bring it up a little bit. And I didn't really notice a difference. So I mean, again, I'm not a patient of yours. But like, generally speaking, could you do you have any insight into maybe why I, I wasn't getting the the feeling or the, that I hoped I would get from it? Well, I think that's very true. It is very var variable in the response, right? Mm -hmm. So in using it clinically, one thing beyond the quiz, doing an injection of oxytocin. So thinking of a, a young, a 21-year-old borderline, let's see, Asperger's uh, young male, and he was very, you know, he sat there the entire interview, no smile, you know, not look, not making eye contact. And I gave him the injection, his ears pinked up, his chest pinked up, he all of a sudden started smiling and making eye contact, it just brought his mom's to his mom to tears, she hadn't seen that behavior in years and years and years. And so that's a true, I mean, he definitely responded to oxytocin. And when it comes to, you know, trauma and PTSD, as well as, you know, to sexual health, and that's where I started using oxytocin, either vaginally, or in a sublingual trochea, I never had good results with nasal spray. I know some of my clients do, but I didn't. But sometimes it's changing the form and maybe the dose wasn't right for you or, or and also that you don't need it, yeah. right? It's not what you need. And the other thing too, oxytocin, just like progesterone, needs healthy level of vitamin D's, D on board as well. Mm -hmm. So making sure that your vitamin D was optimized too in order for it to have some good effects. So there's little tweaks there. And then sometimes you just don't feel it. It's yet, you know, you feel more calm. And right. another way that I used it, like in same thing, we tell clients, you know, going well, used to when they would go from well, still my physician colleagues, going from work to home, right. And you have to be on especially women on as the mom and taking care of the kids and, and you know, preparing evening time, etc that, you know, a meditative practice on the way home, right? Something that brings you joy, makes you happy, you know, play the music you like, laugh. It is not time to listen to the news or think about work. You know, it is time to reset and build oxytocin during that drive home. You can also, sometimes I would have clients, especially ER docs, you know, here's uh, some sublingual oxytocin on the way home. And then that could just make just enough of a difference, not every day long term, because again, we'll get negative feedback and that could affect our own body's natural production. But that's a way that we could do it. But again, if we can do laughter medicine, you know, listen, sing our favorite songs, laughing, smiling, listen to something that makes you laugh or calling that friend that always makes you laugh that you always laugh with that those are things that naturally increase your oxytocin. And that has a better effect for sure. Okay. than anything we could give via prescription. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about another hormone that we do hear about a lot and that we tend to, I don't know, it seems like it's entered the mainstream in terms of exogenous sort of supplementation in a way that other hormones haven't, and that is melatonin. 
I've read, generally speaking, with a lot of hormones that you have to obviously work with a physician and, and work with somebody who's who's versed in this stuff because, of course, you can you can abuse these things. Like people maybe who are thinking of taking exogenous testosterone to improve their sexual health or their muscle tone or, or what have you. But also the idea that if you're kind of taking in exogenous hormones and bio-identical ones that aren't like real, like what you're producing inside, that it can have a negative uh, impact on your ability to create these hormones. But I also read recently, and I should have found the source so I can maybe put it in the show notes, something about that now they're kind of seeing that exogenous use of melatonin supplements maybe isn't as potentially harmful as we thought. Like, so you're always told, like, you should, probably shouldn't use this for more than maybe a couple days in a row, or if you're using it chronically to get to bed, that's going to be a problem. And I read somewhere that, and I think it was specifically with regards to women, that it may not be as bad as we think it is. What are your thoughts on like exogenous melatonin use? You know, I think there's a time where you can. So definitely the younger you are, you don't want to do anything continuously, okay. right? Postmenopausally, there's a difference there. Cyclically, I think it's a good idea in general. Like I take, you know, hormone breaks, I take vitamin breaks, mm -hmm. things like this on a regular basis. But I think there is something to say that, you know, that we shouldn't do large doses long term. But the question is, like, you know, how often do you need a break? Pretty much for most of us, you know, that if we're to take something nightly, we're probably going to miss two to three nights a month. Is that enough? Maybe. Right. <laughs> Maybe. But also lower, like a lower doses can be tremendously impactful. Mm -hmm. So I think there's that aspect too. And timing of melatonin is another interesting factor. I read one study and I had a client say that it melatonin worked best for her when she took it at dinner time. And I read a study that said sometimes taking it before sunset, that it does work better versus at bedtime. And I thought that was interesting too. And definitely in Europe, the typically it's 0.3 to one milligram of melatonin, we typically start, I start at, I have a three milligram sublingual mel melatonin, I tell clients typically start at a half. So that's at 1.5. So it's higher than typical recommended doses. But I think we have great efficacy, even up to for immune support and in breast cancer patients up to 20 milligrams, you know, a day of melatonin. So I think it's like, use it when you need it. You know, Mm -hmm. Don't use it when you don't. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably good advice for, for, I would say most, most things, right? It's like, cause we do tend to sort of have this approach where it's like, well, like this blanket approach, like if we can afford it or if we have access to it, let's like use everything. And then we're covering all our bases, but it's probably generally better to approach the sort of less is more kind of mindset and using things when you need it. And also being aware enough of your body that you know, when you do need these, need this assistance versus like, is there another way that I can approach this? So I think that's that's helpful. There's one other hormone that I do want, I'd love for you to talk about before we kind of move on into different parts of the book. And this is one that I think I'd heard about before, but I, I don't know anything about. And that's adiponectin. Is that the right way to pronounce that? Okay. Can you talk about that one? Yeah. So adiponectin, this little culprit, this is like a guilty hormone, honestly, really because, you know, many women too, if they've had their ovaries removed, they have hysterectomies, they still in this transition time in their late forties, early fifties, hit the, many of the symptoms, the weight gain, a resurgence of hot flashes, even if they didn't do anything different. And I really believe this hormone, I mean, definitely this hormone adiponectin is that culprit because just like our reproductive hormones, as we get older, 
adiponectin declines. Insulin, cortisol go up, but adiponectin declines. And so what does that, what does that mean? It really creates a, a weight loss resistance, a more of a metabolic stall, you know, a conservative energy, and that enables us to gain weight more quickly. And it's a problem. It really is. So this kind of a, a fat store, it's another fat storage hormone, but it really does work to affects our metabolism. That's part of the time clock, biologic clock, that puts us in a little bit of a metabolic stall, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And you do, you speak really thoroughly, I think, in the book on not only sort of laying out all of these different hormones, what they do, how to tell maybe if you're having a deficiency, and then also testing. But is it fair to say for people without, you know, they're gonna have to buy your book to get all the info. But is it fair to say that if you do these sort of baseline comprehensive blood testing, that you should be able to or your your physician should be able to pinpoint which hormone or which combination of hormones it is, because it seems like a lot of the hormones, if you're having an imbalance, they can have similar symptoms, like you can have similar symptoms to like low adiponectin to low estrogen or whatever. Um, so is it is it easy to pinpoint when you've done the, the correct testing? Or is it sometimes like, look, it could be any of these four or five things. So let's just try, you know, try to hit them all and see what happens. Well, it definitely is always say test don't guess, right? And so I look at some elite panels I've used in my clients before, as well as functional medicine testing, looking at mitochondrial function, organic acids, all of these tests have a, you know, give us another little picture snapshot of what's going on in our body. And this is really, you know, when I talk about too, in hormone testing, we have to remember that whether we're testing serum, saliva, urine, we hormones are energetic molecules. We haven't really begun to understand or be able to test them. And then again, because of the complex nature of hormones, how they interact together. So in my findings, because I'm all, I've been testing now for over 20 years, I've been looking at all different levels of hormones, watching from free total testosterone, sex hormone binding globulin, you know, estrogen detoxification panels, all of these things. But what it, you know, it does, does emphasize that again, it takes more than hormones to fix our hormones. These lifestyle changes that create a healthy, balanced physiology, a higher energetic vibration on the basis of quantum physics and physical energy, how that makes a difference is huge. Looking at these numbers at this snapshot of time is a really important thing to do. And then watching what happens over time as you create an intervention. And so with that said, what I want to do is have clients check four key markers. And I talk about this in my books with additional testing too. But four key markers, I want everyone to know like they know their weight on the scale. So the first is your vitamin D 25 hydroxy, because that is essential for all our hormones, right? Really for our high functioning of all our hormones, it's a pro-hormone vitamin D 25 hydroxy. The second is our hemoglobin A1C. How insulin sensitive are we? How well controlled is our blood sugar? This gives us a look at that. And with Keto Green 16, my new book and our plan, my 16 day plan, we've seen hemoglobin A1Cs drop from six to 5.4 in as little as 30 days. I mean, that's crazy, right? That's just unbelievable. And this is in a menopausal age group. Remember, like who's studying menopausal women? I am because it's fascinating and it's me (laughs) and my thousands of women in my community. So 
hemoglobin A1C. And the third is inflammatory marker, highly sensitive C-reactive protein. Now, this is really important. So I want everyone listening to write these down and make sure that you're looking at these markers because as inflammation increasing over time, which is natural part of aging, not optimal, but natural, or is it decreasing? And I've seen a shift in, in women in their 70s. And that's really important to watch and look for and how that shifts over time. And then that, that we start there. We're making improvements. And then let's fine tune in other areas, especially when we need to. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I suppose the, the good news about all of this, we keep talking about how complex everything is. But the good news is, is that whatever your issue or your challenge is, generally speaking, it can be improved by doing the same, improving the same lifestyle factors that we're talking about for anything, whether it's better sleep, better sex, um, happiness, like better body composition, they're all sort of the same lifestyle factors really that we want to address. So I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of the good news is like, no matter how complicated this is, just get better sleep, move a little bit, eat these nutrient dense foods. to take this moment to interrupt the incredibly informative, entertaining podcast that you're listening to right now to tell you a little bit about the show sponsors who are actually allowing me to have a podcast that can run and provide you with lots of entertainment. So bear with me for a hot minute while I tell you about these companies. This episode is sponsored by two companies. The first one is Paleo Magazine, which I'm sure you're already aware of. They are now an online resource used to be a print resource. Now they are focusing primarily online for everything related to the paleo lifestyle and ancestral health. That's food, that's exercise, that's research, that's sleep, that's stress, that's everything you can think of. The digital subscriptions that they offer now give you access to hundreds and hundreds of delicious paleo recipes and hundreds and hundreds of high quality curated articles, research, interviewing experts. And I know that those are good because I wrote a lot of them. So I know they're good and they're constantly going to be updating the content there so that you can get access to new information and new recipes and lots of good content and reading. And you can get full digital access to this online sort of portal with subscriptions as low as $1.25 a month. So they're basically giving it away. It seems kind of like a no-brainer when you think about how expensive magazines are these days. So check out paleomagazine.com. Go get yourself a digital subscription and look up everything by Ashley Van Houten and see what I wrote and what I did because that's all the good stuff. So that's the first sponsor. The second one is a fantastic company owned by an amazing person. The company's called Sweet Apricity and they make paleo and AIP friendly sweets, mostly caramels. They have regular and CBD infused caramels. They have marshmallows. They have uh, these caramel lily puffs, kind of like caramel corn, but kind of tastier and lighter. They've got a caramel sauce. All of these things are made with a couple recognizable ingredients like honey and coconut sugar. They're not overly sweet. And this is coming from someone with a huge sweet tooth. So I can tell you they're they're good. They're really, um, they don't, they aren't sticky. They don't have this kind of sugary fake aftertaste that a lot of these fake quote unquote healthy treats do. They just don't have the preservatives, the sort of weird fake ingredients that often make people sick. And so that's why these are actually okay for people who have pretty strict dietary restrictions. So this company is amazing. Tanya, the founder is awesome. She donated product for me for one of my events that I had. We were kind of friends ever since. The products were such a big hit. It seems like a no-brainer that she could partner with me on this podcast too, because I know some of you out there 
like sweets too. You can pretend that you never eat junk food all you want, but look, I know the deal. So if you're going to eat sugar and you're going to eat treats, make them good quality, make them well-made with good ingredients that you can really enjoy it and not feel like junk afterwards. So head to sweetapricity.com. I'll put the link in the show notes and use the code MUSCLEMAVEN for a 15% discount on any of their treats. And if you try them out, let me know what you think. Try not to eat everything that you order in one shot. Good luck. But the company's fantastic. Well worth trying out. Head to sweetapricity.com and get yourself some snacks. Okay, so that's I want to move into the the diet sort of side of this now because that's a big part of the book. Obviously, the Keto Green 16 and sort of your specific kind of approach to the ketogenic diet, which again is something that I think is often misunderstood or misused uh, with women because it's more complicated. And I think a lot of times women, and I speak for myself too, because I've had sort of less than stellar experiences on a ketogenic diet, that we try to do things in a very standard sort of in this particular box, and maybe it doesn't work for us. And so we think the ketogenic diet isn't the way to go, but you have a slightly different approach. So I'd love for you to kind of just Again, high level, um, you don't have to give away all the, all the tricks, but sort of like high level, um, what, what the differences are between your approach to a ketogenic diet and, and maybe the traditional sort of view of it. Yeah, well, definitely. There are a few key differences between keto, a standard keto diet and keto green, right? Because if we're talking about a general a ketogenic diet, we're just talking about what you eat. And it's typically high fat, you know, 75% of your diet's fat and moderate protein and, and very minimum restricted carbs. And that could go into, there's a lot of foods that could fall, fall into that. So hence you hear the butter and bacon, I mean, hot dogs and Velveeta, I mean, ranch dressing just on everything. Yeah. 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 So, you know, there's, I would say there's keto dirty and there's keto clean, which is keto green and how this really does make a difference. And so that's one thing. So with keto green, my keto green approach, it is about looking and checking urine pH. I have everyone check urine pH and ketones for pennies a day. You can check, you know, and, and see how well are you doing? Are you getting into ketosis? Are you alkaline? Are your urine pH shifting to alkalinity, which would naturally be acidic at certain times? Stress? exercise, dehydration. I mean, so we have to balance that out. We really have to shift our body physiologically more alkaline. And again, back on oxytocin, the most alkalinizing hormone in our body. So with keto green, the difference is also not just about the healthy, you know, higher, better choices in our keto foods, but also in when we eat, like getting into intermittent fasting, what I found it's really hard as women in menopause and postmenopause to get into ketosis. And so it takes some time. It is with our challenges. There are challenges to it as we overcome some, you know, natural resistance that our body has because of hormonal shifts and add in a good dose of stress to that becomes even harder, right? Mm -hmm. So taking the taking it all into account, it's really important. So it's not just about what we're eating, how we're eating, when we're eating, you know, even sometimes who we're eating with, right, mm -hmm. can affect our, our affect our physiology, and mm -hmm. then the, making sure we're getting the hormone detoxifiers on board too, the alkalinizers, you know, to support our body's physiology and estrogen detoxification also to keep us having regular daily bowel movements, which is so, so important. 
Okay, so lots of questions in there. The first one and the biggest one, because this is uh, a word that you've been using a lot and I want to dive into it a little bit more. And this is the concept of like alkaline foods or alkalinizing foods for your body. And I've read, I've read some sort of conflicting information about this as anyone does when they're on the internet too much. But I've read that, and maybe you can make the distinction between foods that create a more alkaline environment in your body versus just eating alkaline foods. Because I've read somewhere that it's not accurate to say that eating alkaline foods will make you more alkaline or vice versa, right? That eating acidic foods will make you make you more acidic. That that's not really how it works. It's more about, I don't know, like nutrient-dense, healthy foods are going to just naturally put your body into a better balance. But can you kind of just lay that straight for me? Yeah, no, absolutely. And this is where the conundrum comes in. This is why like my whole plan, it's a lifestyle. It's about 25% about what we eat. And these are things I found out. Like, why did this vegan vegetarian get cancer? Why does she have so much acidity? Like urine pH is very acidic, you know, and then why did she get cancer? Why does she have these diseases, right? We can ask that as well as, you know, asking the question too, if someone's chronically in a state of starvation for too long, their body can get into a metabolic acidosis. Now we talk, and this is the terminology issue, metabolic acidosis versus a shift in our physiology and cellular health and the communication across the cell membrane. What's that rub, right? If we don't have minerals on board, chloride, magnesium, chromium, potassium, sodium, right? If we don't have minerals on board, we're going to get them from somewhere. Where do we get them from? Minerals are bone, right? Like we have bone broth for a reason. We suck the minerals out of the bone broth. And so same with our physiology because our our blood pH, and we talk about alkalinity, we're not talking about our blood pH. And essentially, if someone was coming crashing into my emergency room, I would put a needle in the radial artery, draw out blood gas, and that has to be very, very specific, slightly alkaline, or that person's very sick. And if they're in a metabolic acidosis, we're giving them IV bicarbonate, which basically bicarb is like baking soda, right? So we're giving them an IV bicarb solution to quickly shift their blood pH to a more alkaline state. And that resuscitates them right away. That helps them right away out of crisis. Now, how did they get into crisis? Could be many reasons. Certainly malnutrition for long extended periods of time can be one. Physiologic diseases can be another. Diabetic ketoacidosis is another. And so that's a shift. But what we know from science is that our urine pH can, I call it another vital sign. It's you know, so critical. It's a vital sign because we can associate a more alkaline urine pH with less diseases of inflammation, less diabetes, metabolic syndrome, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and osteoporosis. And it makes sense because it's not just about what we eat. This is true. Like I said, oxytocin, hormones of love, connection, and binding. Or you could be eating the most nutritious food, right, and be stressed, and that still work against your physiology. So there's a lot more here to it than just what we eat. And that's why, according to the research, 93% of diets fail because it's not just about what we eat if we want to get results, right? Mm -hmm. It's about all these other factors, how we live, how we think, how we relate 
you know, how we feel about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And Those how we feel facts. about the food that we're eating too, right? That can make an impact. Exactly. So what I found in working with this and in menopausal women's, and again, men, we, we look at a lot of research based on men, right? And so men have 10 times as much testosterone as women. So what is testosterone? It's an anabolic steroid, right? It's an anabolic steroid, which will keep us stronger, more muscle, stronger bones, right? For the most part, women, especially in the perimenopause, menopause, we have less testosterone, less progesterone, less estrogen, even with supplementation, there's a lot more to it. And so So this is where it becomes a diet and lifestyle and looking at an alkaline urine pH makes a huge difference. And how do we get there through lifestyle and nourishing foods to our body? It's a combination of the two. I mean, I've been now checking my urine pH for over what five, six years now since I started this. I mean, many years before as a functional medicine doctor, we would tell our detox patients to check your urine pH. I want to get you alkaline through this hormonal detox, right? But it's... It's it's a marker. It's a biomarker, just as important as our pulse, as our heart rate variability, as our temperature. It is a marker of how well we're interacting with the food we eat and the environment that we're living in, the thoughts we keep, and the list goes on. So I have found like those arguments where it says, oh, well, there's the alkaline myth. I'm like, show me the myth. What's the myth about it? Our body will raw Peter to pay Paul to keep it in this balance. And it is a mineral composition that we need to have. If we're not eating, we're going to get into an acidotic state. And again, there's times where we stress, I do extended fasting too, but I'm really cognizant before I do an extended fast, I've shifted my urinary pH to be alkaline on a regular basis, then push my body. I mean, many things can affect it. So I I think that the science is really clear that what we know is that if we can add in a healthy, diverse blend of of plant foods, we have a healthy, diverse microbiome and gut bacteria, as well as estrobolome that works for us in hormone balancing, that there is no argument as far as, you know, you want more alkaline foods and alkaline lifestyle practices to be part of your health and wealth plan. Okay. Is it not true though? And tell me, because this is just something I've read. So in your, your experience, tell me if this is true. Gut health obviously is a massive issue everywhere. And in North America, where we do have sort of chronic stress, we've got a really kind of messed up approach to diet and food system, generally speaking, standard American diet. I have read that generally speaking, a lot of people have not enough acidity in their stomach in terms of digestion. And that's why a lot of people are using digestive enzymes and they're trying to counteract it with probiotics, whether that has any effect. But is that not true though, in terms of sort of this conversation about alkaline and acidity that we actually have low, a problem with low acid in our stomach and and how we can kind of approach that? Absolutely. Increasing your digestive enzymes is one of the key things that we need to do and focus on, especially as we get older. Naturally, along with our reproductive hormones, our digestive enzymes start to decline. So part of Keto Green 16, 16 key food types that work together with the principles of hormone balancing, improving digestion, improving our gut bacterial health. And so fermented foods, digestive aids like chewing on ginger or apple cider vinegar, taking that with your meal. We need 
to add digestive support. And then the other thing, very simple, don't dilute your digestive enzymes. This whole thing about free refills, I mean, we have a sick nation because of free refills because <laughs> it's diluting our digestive enzymes. It makes perfect sense when we call it out, right? But it is not common practice. It is common sense, but not common practice. And so I always tell clients, if you have a piece of meat, you pour acid on it, you're going to dissolve that meat. But take that same piece of meat, take the same amount of acid and then pour a tall glass of water or beer or soda, whatever your free refill is on top of it, you've just diluted the digestive enzyme. I've actually done this as a little science homeschool experience with my daughter recently because I wanted to show her how important it was not to not to drink with meals. So we did this as a science experience with some ground meat and some hydrochloric acid. <laughs> That's a that's a cool uh, mom trick at home. Like let's play with our let's play with our meat and acid and see what happens. But that's that's a really good point because it's something that I learned from a, a, another sort of expert friend of mine that I never I once I heard it the first time I it kind of stuck with me forever. You guys because we're always telling people drink water, drink water, be hydrated, drink a lot. And I think people assume that that's something you should be doing while you're eating because it's like helping the whole process. And people talk about chugging water before a meal so that you're less hungry for some reason. But when I, when I read, yeah, but, yeah. I was going to absolutely, but stop 20 minutes before that meal and wait right. two hours after. Right. 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 But the concept of, you know, water diluting your body's ability to digest what you just ate, of course, makes a lot of sense. And it's one of those super simple changes you can make right away. It's not saying, you know, never drink again, but like maybe try to ease back on the chugging your soda or even your water while you're eating. I think that makes a lot of sense. So another thing that I kind of wanted to talk about, like looking at your your sort of list of the better foods and the less good foods, you do tend to, I believe, have maybe a more plant focused approach rather than some people have a kind of more maybe meat heavy approach, even to keto and prioritizing things like maybe white fish and chicken. And you still do, you know, you speak to like high quality organic kind of game meat and like buffalo and bison and things like that, which I love personally. Would you say though that it's, that it is a, like less meat that you want to aim for, like kind of more better quality, less quantity? Or is that kind of individual to the person? One of the reasons I ask is because I do find from my perspective in working with clients in like a health coaching capacity and women who are looking to build muscle and have sort of strong bodies is that one of the issues I find with women specifically is that they often tend to under eat protein to a level where they don't have an ability to gain or even maintain the muscle that they have because we've been taught so much that like, you know, red meat is like a dude thing. First of all, that that's like a gendered thing that we shouldn't be eating. We have to stick to our sort of fish and, and chicken. And also the idea that like a a decent sort of portion of protein is like heavy, or that's going to be heavy on us or stay in our stomachs and kind of all these myths around why we shouldn't be eating a protein centric meal. So I'd love for you to kind of just sort of parse that out for me a little bit and talk about ideal protein and ideal amounts for women on, on your approach to the keto diet. Yeah, I actually have a keto calculator that it created. It's, um, it's, I'll give you the link, but it's at dranna.com forward slash keto calc. And you can see a day in the life of being keto green. And I've had so many people, athletes, Olympic athletes, nutritionists, and physicians, and, you know, just a wide range of people taking that like, Oh, my God, I'm surprised, you know, like how much I can eat. But the big thing is, I want to say that there are times for 
feasting and there's times for fasting. And, and this is a really important thing to consider. And I'm not afraid of red meat. I love bison, red meat, you know, I, I'm an omnivore and I, I look to definitely vary up my diet as much as possible because we know the variety and also food and seasons make a difference. But part of this is a large, you know, fasting, you know, lifestyle as well that we need to do so that we can digest these meats well. So that intermittent fasting in my program was 16 hours of intermittent fasting, no more snacking, and the instructions not to drink with your meal, not to have more than one or two cups of tea or something at bed, you know, before, after your dinner meal even, right? Not That's a big mistake that we make too. So especially when we're older and then we're getting up at night to urinate. So all of these things affect us. And over time, so retraining our body and retraining our body habits. All that to say, I, you know, I love what you're saying here is that, you know, it's often that, and Dr. Gabrielle Lyon says it so well, you're not over fat, you're under muscled, yeah. right? And we need high quality protein in order to do that. So that's a, that is a large component of, of being keto green that we're making sure we're getting protein. But another issue, especially for those in my generation where we were part of that low fat movement, you know, that, I mean, I mean, seriously, I got to tell you a side story on this in a second, Ashley, but the whole low fat movement, right? I was in high school and college during this low fat movement. And that was, that's destructive to our hormones. I really focus on women just, first of all, just you know, really, and most women don't have a problem with the veggie parts, right? Mm -hmm. But the fat part is the hardest part for so many of us. And again, you know, and for protein, a, a four to six ounces of beef, depending on our exercise, our, you know, age, our different things, but we need to make sure we're digesting it well. If we were to eat and digest, chew our food really well and allow it to be completely digested. That's the key. That's like the, you know, that's like the secret sauce mm -hmm. to this entire plan. It's that many times we're eating, like think of that king steak or whatever, right? And you chew three chews and you're swallowing down and, and you're just eliminating the majority of, of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're hungry, you're, you know. It's true, right? You've got to, we have to chew our food so it dissolves in our mouth. I mean, these, these little things make a big difference, but, and so I think that's especially important as we're older, when we have less digestive enzyme, we have to start the process early and make sure we're getting enough protein. Mm -hmm. And that definitely can be a challenge for many of us too. So mm -hmm. I love that you mentioned um, Dr. Gabrielle, because she's actually my doctor. So she has to get a shout out in like every episode. But of course, we see very eye to eye, we both have like fitness backgrounds too, where we we like, you know, whether I like to eat protein or not, which I happen to like, we have to if you want to build muscle and especially for women as we all learn at some point if we're in a, a you know strength or muscle building environment like you have to prioritize protein doesn't mean you have to eat you know 250 grams every day or whatever but you have to eat at least enough or it's not going to happen like women do not build muscle accidentally and overnight like you need to really like put put an effort into it for it to happen so yeah and i mean i think one of the other conversations too when we're talking about like the nuance of what types of food exactly to eat is that I think in a lot of cases, because you know, the big part of the conversation right now is stuff like carnivore diets or eliminating vegetables entirely or eliminating carbs entirely or all of these really sort of extreme approaches. And it really does seem like in every case, like the poison or the antidote or whatever is really in the dose because 
almost everything that we put in our body could be helpful or harmful depending on the dose. And it's even things like, um, you know, super healthy cruciferous vegetables or leafy green vegetables and nuts and seeds. Like there's a phytonutrient kind of aspect that we need to look into for some people that may or may not be um, more sensitive. And something that I've kind of dealt with during quarantine is this concept of histamine that I've never had to deal with before. And when you look at the list of high histamine foods, it is literally a list of like paleo superfoods that I eat every single day, right? And it's just, but it's like you hit a certain, a threshold or a tipping point with some of these things and it becomes problematic. And the same thing can happen for protein if you're eating too little and so your body is, you know, catabolizing and eating your own muscle. If you're eating too much and it's turning into glucose and you're gaining weight. So there's all of these like balancing acts that we have to kind of experiment with. And I think that's one of the things that I keep trying to hammer home and with this podcast and speaking to people like you is we have to just reframe this, this experimental phase and this kind of trying things out as like a fun journey because otherwise you're going to be miserable and it doesn't, <laughs> no doctor, like nobody, nobody, no matter how much, you know, you can't give me a prescription for exactly every single thing laid out, how I should eat, what I should eat, when I should eat it you know, all that stuff, part of it is like you providing the information and then we have to empower ourselves to to do the work and experiment and see what works specifically for us, right? Absolutely. It is that self-discovery. I talk, I always say it's getting your Nancy Drew on and yeah. it is doing, being your best detective or Sherlock Holmes or whatever. But I mean, really it's, it's figuring out what works for me. And it's also, it varies different times of life, different stress levels, you know, are you, you know, different seasons and understanding it's not one size fits all, all the time. Yeah. And you know, like it, what works for you today may not work for you in the winter. And the, and that's where with bio identical hormone replacing, which I really loved is empowering my patients to figure out how do they fine tune their hormones so that it works for them. Sometimes they need more in the winter and less in the summer. I mean, how cool is that, right? But the same dose every time, and that's where prescription formulas fall short too. Then number one, they're usually not bioidentical. But number two, it's not the same dose you need. Sometimes you need a little bit more, a little bit less. And as you fine tune in your body, you really get to figure that out. And again, it takes more than hormones to fix our hormones. Yeah. <laughs> The last big topic that I want to talk about before I let you go, because, you know, I don't want to keep you here all day. We've talked about it a little bit is this concept of fasting, which is yet again, another thing that applied has to sort of be applied differently, I think, to men and women. And even like you said, sort of women in different phases of their life or different stress inputs, right? Because I think there are certain times where when uh, fasting would be a better idea or a worse idea. And you've mentioned in the book, and we've talked about a little bit today, sort of a daily intermittent fast that's really only about 16 hours, which is really, I think, essentially for people, it's just sort of while you're sleeping plus a couple hours, right? Like so many of us, when we think about fasting, we think like, oh, does this mean I have to go days without eating? And then there are people who, who have never really gone more than 10 or 12 hours without eating because you're so used to, you have a snack before bed, you get up and immediately eat because that's what you do. What do you think is like a gen, like how do, how do women who have never fasted or thought about fasting, how do we sort of get our heads around it? And, and how do we start that, that process if we're unfamiliar or we're kind of like nervous about fasting in general? Yeah, you know, I think this is a really big imp uh, important factor. And the where we talk about intermittent fasting, where I really encourage clients is, is, you know, it's that dinner to bedtime area that's usually 
an area of sabotage for so many, right? That's the popcorn watching the movies, the whatever, the fruit, even the fruit bowl while watching the movies, right? Mm-hmm. That's a high sugar. So you're, you're, glucose is going, even the healthy ones, right? High carb, glucose goes up and then it's going to come down. You're going to be hungry again. You may wake up in the middle of the night because of a cortisol surge or a hypoglycemia, you know, a low blood sugar because of this, you know, eating right at bedtime, something that contains carbs. And so that's just sets you up for failure. You wake up hungry and already and you're chasing your tail, so to speak. And so it really does start with that nice keto green dinner, ideally before six or 7 p.m., right? And just start with that. We want to set ourselves up for success so that we have healthy amounts of fat. Now, my dinner meals, I like to add a little bit more carbs or even some digestive fruit. A little bit goes a long way. If it bumps you out of ketosis, we take that out. But we work on this, it, you know, with our evening meal, make sure that evening meal is really, you know, healthy, high quality fat, and you feel satiated. And then just a cup of tea or two or a glass of wine in the evening. But do not, you know, that is not the time where you want to do your majority of hydrating. It's, I mean, specifically, if you get up at night to use the bathroom, mm-hmm. we want you to get that restorative good night's sleep. Plus, many falls and accidents happen from the bed to the bathroom for that, you know, in that reason in the dark room that came, especially in our elders that caused those problems, right? Mm -hmm. And so then when you wake up in the morning, hydrate, you know, good alkaline water, I do a shot of Mighty Maca with some apple cider vinegar, typically, or just with some water, and just to start working on detox right away. And then technically, you know, when you break fast with a keto green meal, it's with high quality fats, high quality protein, and very low carb, but the carb are the dark green leafy. So they're rich in fiber, again, stabilizing your blood sugar. So I've worn continuous glucose monitoring over the past year, a little device that goes on the back of your arm and you use your smartphone and you can see what your sugar is, uh, interstitial sugar is any time of the day. And so to see how the meals work and I've had clients too, they said, you know, I can't go, you know, I get hypoglycemic. I can't go without snacks. I can't. I said, absolutely you can. And it's very important to because that's going to improve your longevity, improve your physiology. And, you know, it's just by design, you are designed and able to do this. We have to shift what you're eating and when you're eating it so that your blood sugar stays stable. And then like, oh my God, I never Mm -hmm. thought I could do this. Mm -hmm. It's really a beautiful thing. It's really a beautiful thing. Yeah. And I think another another area that women probably struggle with sometimes is eating enough because we're thinking that we need to have these sort of, you know, for, especially if we're trying to lose weight, we're just thinking, okay, restrict, restrict, restrict. And one of the key indicators of how snacky you're going to be before bed is did you eat enough at dinner, right? We try to do this, like, let's eat as little as possible, just see if we can get through. And of course, that's what's going to create all this hanger and like, okay, I'm going to get up in the middle of the night and eat whatever's in the fridge. Just like honoring that your body needs to be nourished. And that means you need to eat like a decent, nice, you know, amount of amount of food. What do you think about longer fasts for women? And I'm not necessarily speaking about our current time frame where we're sort of stuck in the house, and we've got this weird stress and all this kind of stuff that's going on. But just generally speaking for women who are, again, general good health, but maybe looking to improve their relationship with food, lose a couple pounds, whatever. What do you think about women who are like, you know, I'd like to kind of experiment with maybe like a weekly 24 hour fast, or I'd like to experiment with longer daily fasts, maybe like only having a six hour compressed eating window or something like that. What, what are your general thoughts about that? 
I think work up to it. Definitely work up to it. And so with my Keto Green 16 Challenge, we're running a, a challenge group. So for our book buyers that are committed to the 16 days, we are working them into this 16 day, 16 hour intermittent fast. Now I do an extended fast on Sundays. Typically, that's my at least one long fast day a week. And then right at the start of the quarantine, just because I was cycling down, I immediately went into a. I did two days of Keto Green shakes and then three days of water fasting. And that was just game changing for me. And so there are times of feasting, times of fasting. And it's really important for women to know that these low calorie days that we have destroy our metabolism. They destroy our metabolism. We are better to fast than eat small meals. So our small amount of, cal- if we're caloric restricted, it, we know that if a uh, According to you know studies, scientific studies that have looked at caloric restriction versus fasting, we know that with caloric restriction, it affects our basal metabolic rate. Our basal metabolic rate will decrease. So hence, when we start eating again, we gain weight. That's not the same with fasting. How cool is that, right? Mm. That's counterintuitive, but actually fasting will preserve your basal metabolic rate so you don't get the rebound in studies that shows that you don't get the rebound weight gain. Mm-hmm. I think I think one of the key things for for women to take away from this idea of a compressed eating window or this daily intermittent fasting is that it doesn't necessarily mean and again, this is different depending on who you are and your background, but it doesn't mean that you're eating less like if you're not eating breakfast at nine doesn't mean that you're not eating those calories that sometimes you may end up eating fewer calories because you're snacking less or because you, you know, maybe you're moving less during the day or whatever, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're chronically reducing your calories. It just means that you're reducing the time window during the day that you'd be. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Because you want, I mean, fats carry pack a lot of calories with them. So, and I am terrible, like as far as calorie counting and food measuring and stuff like that. So really I want people to get a gestalt. What does your plate look like? What works for you and what doesn't? Mm -hmm. I guess one kind of last like little nuance that I want to talk about with the fasting, you know, you mentioned talking about certain carbs that you're going to eat at night or things that are going to kick you out of ketosis. And one of the things that I think kept me from doing a more strict and long-term version of keto. And just for some background, I generally tend to eat like a whole foods sort of paleo approach. So maybe a little higher in carbs than traditional keto, a little higher in protein maybe, but certainly well-balanced and lower carb than like a traditional standard, you know, American diet. And the carbs are coming from usually sweet potato, vegetables, and some fruit and things like that. But one of the things that always kind of stuck with me was this idea that it's not necessarily sustainable for everyone long term to do something that requires constant testing and also like almost like ketone chasing in some ways, like the same way that macro counting doesn't work for everyone because it can become dysfunctional. And I understand that there are ways to test these things that are relatively inexpensive and relatively easy. But this idea that we're always kind of worried about getting knocked out of ketosis. And so my approach was always this idea of being, you know, metabolically flexible, certainly not relying on carbs to get through the day, but also not being so so worried or dogmatic about like that end goal of of like being under a certain amount of carbs is a more reasonable approach for like long term, right? Um, and also, I understand that there are certain people who have chronic um, disease or are in such an unhealthy state that like they have to be strict. That's the only way they can move forward. But I think that some of us that are stuck in the middle that don't necessarily need to be that dogmatic, 
we, we enter into that approach and it becomes this unhealthy, obsessive thing. So can you speak a little bit to people who are listening to this and are thinking, you know, I'm, I'm into this idea and I think that I should look at this approach, but I'm just not sure about this testing thing. I'm not sure about like tracking my ketones and my blood glucose and stuff like that. Can you kind of talk about how to make this approach something that's just the way you eat, that's just reasonable and sustainable and kind of easy to manage long term? Yeah, and I think it it really does. I, I, I am, Ashley, I think that when it comes to figuring out what's working for you, you have to have metrics. You have to have metrics, right? I'm a scientist at heart, so I want to see that, those metrics, but I can understand where it can become obsessive. But the nice thing, like, you know, very rarely, if you're watching urine ketones and pH, I mean, you're going to bump in and out. And seeing what happens is that discovery. And I think that's really important, too, especially even ketogenic diets, is that we have that metabolic flexibility, we bump in and what and bump out. But first, know what it takes to get there. And get a feel for what it looks like for you. And when do you feel best? When are you feeling like that not so good or that you're slipping back? And what are the changes that what are the lifestyle processes and habits that you've created that serve you and what doesn't serve you. So I think it's that question of discernment. So if we're able to be intuitive and you're very intuitive and being able to say, this serves me, this doesn't serve me, this practice serves me, this doesn't serve me. You know, once I have the information or, you know, and I've hit my level of of satisfaction with it, right? I, I know what's working for me and I know what's not. Then that's where you're able to, you know, just to be mm-hmm. and to be present with the practices that work for you and also noting that it's, you know, there's times when it changes and we have to change things up or there's times where, you know, we stop testing and then we, we slip back and, and what's happening exactly, you know, what caused us to slip back and figure that out and then get us back on track. I think when we're healthy and we're on course and we're doing everything, we're living well and our, our symptom scores are low, then there's like, I like I said, I don't calorie count, don't look at the weight, reg, you know, the scale regularly, any of these factors. So what serves you, what doesn't serve you? And you have to ask yourself that. But staying on track, I know that what gets measured gets managed. And that is really key to find out, okay, this is this because often people will say in my programs, well, this isn't working for me. I'm like, well, what are your what are your metrics? What's been going on? Well, I don't know. I haven't tested. I didn't look. You know, I didn't measure. I'm like, well, maybe that's the next right step just to get a gestalt, but not to become obsessive over it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, like you said, there are times for feasting and fasting, and there are times for being super strict with your metrics and times for being able to sort of, you know, eyeball it and and be intuitive and figure out how you feel just based on your own kind of personal responses. And I think that that's, again, part of the journey, like we talked about before, it's like, this becomes self-exploration and it becomes fun and it becomes sort of an interesting experience and a challenge rather than this chore that you like have to do to get to this end state of health because we're never there, right? We're always in the process of finding sort of our ideal health. So yeah. Dr. Anna, thank you so much for taking the time. I know I could keep you here all day. I love it, but (laughs) I won't do that. But can you, can you remind our listeners where they can go to connect with you and learn more about you and when the book's coming out? 
Yeah, so Keto Green 16 is out. It was released uh, Cinco de Mayo. Okay. Here is my first book, The Hormone Fix, and my second book, Keto Green 16, that just released on May 5th. So you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Anna C and in my Keto Green community and Instagram at Dr. Anna Quebeca. My website is dranna.com. So like Drana, D-R-A-N-N-A.com. Real easy. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank, Thank you so you. much for all of this great work that you've done. It's very helpful. And I've already learned a lot about because my my new thing is just learning about all of these crazy hormones. Because again, I'm in my <laughs> mid 30s, too. So like, I'm starting to experience some things <laughs> that I didn't experience before. I'm like, there's so much fun about getting older <laughs> as a woman. It's just so exciting. Every day, it's something new. So anyway, I appreciate that so there are people true. like you out there that, that can kind of give us some words of wisdom. So thank you again for your time. And, and you'll have to come back and chat with me again soon. Thank you. Well, just on that note, you know, here I was a hormone expert, Emory University trained hormone expert already in clinical practice for years. And, you know, like what I knew didn't make sense. My doctor's bag was empty. So I get the I get the frustration. It does become this discovery. And we need to look at it as this beautiful discovery process and understanding again, what's our just one next right step that we can take and Anyway, Ashley, thank you so much for having me. I love what you're doing. Thanks, Anna. And that's a wrap, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. As a reminder, this is still brand new, right? This is kind of technically my second episode, although it's really like my 200th episode. But it's my second episode of Muscle Maven Radio. And to get this out to people, I really need your support. So I would love it if you subscribe to the podcast, if you leave a nice rating and review if you enjoyed this episode, and if you share the episode with somebody that you know and love that you think could benefit. And I think anybody with hormones, especially women, could benefit from this one. So please do that. And as always, I want your feedback. So hit me up on Instagram at The Muscle Maven. That is where I am the most active. You can also connect with me on my website at ashleyvanhouten.com. And you can sign up for my weekly newsletter there because I put out tons of sort of newsletter specific uh, exclusive information on that one. And that's that. Shout out to my friends at Sweet Apricity for sponsoring the show and making delicious treats that are paleo and AIP friendly. Head to sweetapricity.com and use the code MUSCLEMAVEN to treat yourself. All right. Thanks again. Hope you join me next time.